0: Hello, this is Sunday Starter. I'm Andy Mangum. Our goal in this podcast is to look at an upcoming Sunday and to look at one of the texts on the Revised Common Lectionary assigned to that Sunday. Today we're looking at Year C, Pentecost Sunday, and our scripture reference is Acts 2, 1-21. through In this episode, we look at the traditional Pentecost story for Sunday. Acts 2, 1-4 begins, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages, as the Spirit gave them ability. Pentecost was an acknowledged Jewish holiday. It began as an agricultural festival, a harvest festival. It occurs seven weeks after Passover, and it is a part of the annual Jewish commemoration of the Exodus event. Around 18 or 19 centuries ago, it started to develop a time of remembering the law, the giving of the law at Sinai. However, it is unlikely that the connection between Sinai and Pentecost was in effect in the time of Jesus. Within Christian celebrations, it is acknowledged as the conclusion of Eastertide, It celebrates the gift of the Holy Spirit and celebrates the birth of the church, and it occurs in Christian timekeeping seven weeks after Easter Sunday. Much of the usual biblical commentary around this uh, text will focus on the historicity of the event, uh, wondering whether it is truly miraculous or whether this is Luke's understanding and description of the nature of speaking in tongues or glossolalia uh, in that event. Uh, and, and I think that's, uh, from for, from that perspective, it's it's fine for what it is. But the focus I would want to take is to look at Luke's, Luke's theological vision. What I have emphasized in this Eastertide series is the expanding circles, uh, looking at the ways in which the awareness of God's love, which has always been for everyone, but the awareness of God's love is expanding out from the early proclamation and witness of the disciples into the rest of the world. The thesis statement of Acts, I believe, is Acts one eight, where Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The preceding verses also emphasize the gift of the Holy Spirit, where Jesus reminded them that while John baptized with water, the disciples of Jesus Christ, would receive a baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is the gift of the Holy Spirit that both empowers the disciples' witness and their capacity to expand their circles. God is reclaiming all languages in God's vision. So for me, it causes me to consider the relationship between my understanding of the Holy Spirit and the life and the work of the church. The story of Acts continues. Verse 5. The people in the story identify the apostles as Galileans, yet they are amazed that they hear in their own language. We still struggle with the relationship between the particularity and universality of God's work. The message originates from a particular place, Galilee, but it stretches beyond that place. There's a touchstone here between the two focuses of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the founding of the church, the pneumatology and the ecclesiology, and the work of the two focuses of church in the New Testament. The New Testament speaks of church both as a local and universal reality. The term for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. It is not the only term used by early Christians to refer to themselves or their movement, but it is certainly a central term for the New Testament. The local congregation met regularly, had offices, cared for one another in sickness, among other activities that they had together. The local church uh, congregation appears to have been a tight-knit gathering of people who served together and who, through covenant relationship, had bound their lives to one another in some way. All that is gleaned from the epistles. There are only two uses of the word ecclesia recorded in the Gospels, in the mouth of Jesus. And they seem to reflect these two natures. Of the two references, one of them, the one in Matthew 18:17. Seems to address this local community aspect of the church. Jesus was speaking of handling a disagreement between believers and discusses a final step, that being the involvement of the ecclesia, the church, meaning a local gathering of believers. The other reference or use of ecclesia by Jesus in the gospel comes in Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus had asked his disciples who they confessed Jesus to be, and Peter said, You are the Messiah the son of the living God, Jesus affirmed Peter's response indicating that he would build his church, ecclesia, upon Peter or upon Peter's confession of faith. We might call this the universal church. Jesus commanded the disciples to go into all the world and make disciples and also emphasize the global nature of Christian witness before his ascension. So while the original vision of the church certainly included the local congregation, it never intended Christian disciples to keep their heads to the ground, looking only at the local church. And that's reflected in this story where people identify the earliest disciples as Galileans, but also recognize that they have a message that stretches beyond Galilee. In some ways, Pentecost also reflects a reverse Babel. In Genesis 11, we hear the story of the Tower of Babel and how the people of the earth tried to build a tower of God and were thwarted in their attempts by the diversity of language. I take that story to be mythological. However, there is a sense in which the miracle of people coming from different places and context and miraculously receiving a message is uh, in their own language has the implication of God lifting the curf- curse and at least for a brief moment, reconciling the differences between people by creating a language that all could understand. It undoubtedly foreshadows the proclamation of the good news to the Gentile world. The focus of the text then shifts to Peter's sermon to the gathered people. Peter standing with the 11 raised his voice and addressed them. People of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show the portents of heaven above and signs of on the earth below blood and fire and smoky mist, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I am not from a creedal tradition. I grew up Baptist, and for the past 30 years I have served in a disciple's context. But I've come to value the early ecumenical creeds of the church, especially the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed formed out of baptismal liturgy, a baptismal candidate would enter the water and would be asked three questions. Do you believe in God the Father? Do you believe in God the Son? And do you believe in the Holy Spirit? Their response would come in from some version of the creed. They would elaborate on their answers. Yes, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. Yes, I believe in God the Son, born of Mary, suffered under Pilate, crucified, died, buried, rose again, ascended and returning. The final stanza included the belief in the Holy Spirit and what follows may seem like they belong to um, something else, that they are just an assortment of beliefs. Uh, they include things like a belief in the Holy Church, the forgiveness of sins, the communion of saints, and life everlasting. I believe, however, that the creed was envisioned or envisioned these as the work of the Holy Spirit, that these are what the Holy Spirit does in the world, just as the first two stanzas speak of God the creator and God's creative power in the world, and God the son and God's redemptive work in the world. The Holy Spirit in the Hebrew Bible is the breath of God. It gives life to all creation. In the creation narrative, the spirit of God is active from the beginning, Genesis 1-2. In Genesis six seventeen, there's reference to God's judgment against the world, and God says he will destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life. You can also look at Genesis 7:15. In Numbers 16:22, the people petitioned God for leniency by describing God as the God of the spirits of all flesh. The creation psalms also emphasize the role of the spirit within creation, especially the creation of life. Psalm 36, 33, 6 uh, said, The Lord made creation by the breath of his mouth. And Psalm 104, 30 says, When you send forth your spirit, they, that is all humanity or all creation, uh, are created. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life. This Holy Spirit as God's breath is understood as a life-giving force, both physically and spiritually. The New Testament joins the Old Testament in affirming the role of the Spirit in people's lives. So it is appropriate when we think of the birthday of the church to think of the Spirit of God giving life to the church in much the same way that Scripture affirms the life-giving capacity of the Spirit in other living beings. The Holy Spirit is re- the revealer of truth uh, of God to humanity. Uh, in John, we hear that the Holy Spirit is a paraclete, that is, one who comes alongside to help. And the paraclete carries on Jesus' ministry after his ascension, John 14, 16-17, verse 26, as well as sixteen seven through 15 Paul uh, also affirms this role of the Holy Spirit as the revealer of truth saying in 1 Corinthians 12:3 uh, that no one confesses faith without the Holy Spirit enabling them. The revealing character of the Holy Spirit is especially important in the context of defending oneself and the gospel at trials. You can look at Matthew 10:19-20 and John 15:26 and 27. All of this to say that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers people for witness, Acts 1.8. The church's circle does not expand out of our own force of will, but through the Spirit of God, enabling us to bear witness. We might at this time also affirm some other ways that the Bible describes the activity of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit forms and transforms people's character. This transformation is often viewed as new life. So where Scripture speaks of the Holy Spirit as the giver of life, it also speaks of the new life through the same Spirit. Jeremiah thirty-one, thirty-one 31-34, though this passage does not explicitly name the Spirit of God, it does emphasize God's intention to communicate, God, communicate God's will directly within the hearts of people, where it says, I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel 36, 26-27 says, A new heart I will give you. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statues and carefully observe to, be careful to observe my ordinances. We could point to several texts in the New Testament that point out the sanctifying and equipping role of the Holy Spirit. For me, the relationship of the fruit of the Spirit in the discussion of Galatians 5 is particularly salient, that it is the Spirit of God that draws out from us joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. So I do believe it is right to speak of the Holy Spirit as the one who gives birth to the church, who nurtures and sustains the church. Finally, I would like to suggest something of an inter-liturgical year dialogue in this text. Within the Christian liturgical year, we have two great cycles, the cycle of light and the cycle of life. The cycle of light begins with Advent, culminates with Christmas, and concludes with Epiphany. And the cycle of life begins with Lent, culminates with the Holy Holy Week, and concludes with Pentecost. In some ways, these cycles have a parallel course. Advent and Lent are both seasons of preparation. Both cycles follow a pattern of anticipation, celebration, and response. Lots of Christians show up just for the celebration portion. They neglect the penance and reflection called forth in Advent and Lent. They celebrate with joy the holidays of Christmas and Easter, but there's no response. And that's the last part. Epiphany and Pentecost acknowledge God's revelation of God's self through these events that we celebrate. And the human response is what follows. In other words, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the formation of the church is the response of people to the majesty of Easter. In other words, the gift of the Holy Spirit and the formation of the church is the human response that we give to the majesty and glory of Easter. Protestants have been rediscovering the value of Advent and Lent for the past, I don't know, four years or so. But for the cycle to be completed its purpose, the response also needs to be reclaimed. Epiphany symbolizes the human response to the divine action of incarnation. Pentecost symbolizes the human response to the divine action of resurrection. It's what I call the what to the so what, or the so what to the what move. What names is what is true. God is with us. Emmanuel. That's the what. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. That's the what. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell with us and convey God's presence to us. That's the what. At various times in Christian history, we have reduced our faith to the assembling of all the what's we are supposed to believe. We've called them creeds and statements of faith and confessions and said, as long as you can recite them and sign your name to the bottom line, you're a Christian. Yet the gospel consumes more than that. It beckons for a response. Isaiah said, I heard the voice of the Lord calling, and then I said, here am I, send me. And John said, the word became flesh, and we beheld His glory. Paul said, This one thing I do, forgetting what is left behind, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. The response is the creative, intentional, and active movement that we take because of what God has done. One more statement about epiphany that is relevant here. The narrative of epiphany is the revelation of God to the magi, pork-eating pagan astrologers who brought who are brought to see the incarnation of Christ at Bethlehem. One more sign that God's circle includes all humanity and the church's mission involves expanding our circle. So here in Pentecost, we also see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation experiencing the gift of the Holy Spirit and the church adjusting with an expanding circle. Thanks be to God. Well, that concludes our Eastertide focus on the expanding circle. And uh, I hope that you redeem the drive for the commutes are indeed evil. We'll see you next week.